I, I want to uh, connect these two because I think it's a, a very appropriate and very applicational point to make. Now, let me uh, define those terms. Oh, I don't know, the last three weeks maybe, uh, maybe it was even a little before I left on my trip, but then uh, in this period of time, we, we studied from chapter 4, verse 13, through what we finished last week, chapter 5, <coughs> verse 11. Two major end-time teachings block the material, okay? And we have uh, talked a little bit about this before. We saw a little of it at the very beginning of the book of 1 Thessalonians. This is a church that is very dear to Paul's heart for reasons that we talked about when we began our study. And in the church itself, there was um, a number of things. Ha- there were a number of things happening, but Paul had taught them about end time teaching. You know what I mean by end time teaching, don't you? You know, the return of Jesus for the church and all of the things wrapped around uh, second coming. I mean, just the material that's in Revelation and all that. We don't know all he taught, but we know the subjects that he taught because he brings it up. And so he says here in the first part, chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, he teaches the doctrine of the rapture. He doesn't talk about the timing of it, when it's going to occur, in terms of the end time. He just teaches it. And the response of that teaching is comfort one another with this truth. Encourage one another with this truth. Because Jesus is going to fulfill his promise that he made in John 14. I'm going back to the Father, but I will come back for you. Then in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, which we talked about last week, which is a much more difficult block of material, but it's the key phrase is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not the rapture. They're not the same thing at all. This is a long period of time. But the point is, he says, those of you who have put your faith in Christ, you will not be the subjects of God's wrath. You will be delivered from that. Therefore, same thing. Comfort one another and encourage one another with these truths. And that's it. Then he immediately, the next verse would be verse 12, he immediately goes into present-day behavior. And so, one of the things that we see throughout the New Testament, and almost always in Paul's teaching, it goes this way. He teaches something about the end time, and then he teaches, this is how it should affect your life today. In other words, this isn't pie-in-the-sky kind of teaching that really doesn't affect how you live. As a matter of fact, this is the opposite. Because this is a series of promises that God has made to each one of us, then this should affect how we live today. Does that make sense? Because so often, and I've been in churches where this occurs over the years, you have, you have a pastor or you have a Sunday school class or an adult ed class or something like that where they're teaching in detail the things of, of the end, which is a good thing to teach. And they construct the lines and try to figure out the exact order and all that. And then they never talk about, well, how should this affect how we live today? Because Paul keeps saying, what I'm telling you about the future should affect how you live today. Because it gets to the point, 27% of God's word is prophecy. That's a big part of God's word. 
And if it's therefore in the text, kind of all over the Bible, then it is for a purpose. It's to affect how we live. It's to affect us now. Because we are called to represent him. And so what I'm trying to do in this mess that I've written up here on the board is to make this connection, build this bridge between these two blocks of teaching. And that is precisely what he's doing here. So let me stop for a minute. I, th- th- this, is, this is kind of foundational to understanding and properly interpreting what's going on in the scriptures. Everything is connected. You don't disconnect, well, this is over here, and this has nothing to do with this teaching, and this teaching's here, and it has nothing to do, everything is integrated together, because it is the consistent, comprehensive, integrated nature of God's uh, word, his revelation to us. So does that make sense? You want to talk about that? Got that? It'll be on the quiz, so make sure you get it. So everyone here, either we will die... Uh, before the rapture, or if we live, we will be taken up. That's right. And then, because that's true, it should affect how we live today, perhaps for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly love them and care about where they spend eternity, we should be faithful in our witness to them and mm-hmm. that because of the power of the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be that witness in this present day according to how and would shape our behavior. That's exactly right. The future hope we have should affect how we live today. Let's do it another way. Just using terms that, again, are all over the New Testament. This is our hope. This represents our faith and our love. Does that sound familiar? Faith, hope, and love. I'm, I'm teaching, I teach another uh, Bible study, no, I teach actually three, but I, uh, on Wednesdays, but it's a very early morning one. We were, we we're just getting started in Colossians. And it's really interesting, a little Thanksgiving section that Paul says as he begins the book of Colossians. I thank the Lord, every remembrance of you, for the faith that you have shown, the love you have for one another, because you have hope centered in Jesus Christ. See the three words? That is a consistent, um, if I use the word rubric, you know what I mean? It's a consistent rubric or matrix in Paul's theology, our hope, which is the future, end times stuff God's going to fulfill promises, should affect how we live today. The faith and trust we have in him and the love for God and the love for people that we are supposed to have. These three are inextricably linked in the Christian life. That's what he's doing in First Thessalonians. Got it? Done. Good. I mean, this every now and then it, it's important to step back and see the huge forest as we're digging into the. That's gonna, no metaphors are going to work. As we start to look at the trees, I was going to be digging into trees. That doesn't work. But you know what I uh, what I'm saying, and that's what I, I I want you to see that. It's just how beautifully integrated everything is in God's Word. I mean, it's 
It's just, it, it continues to almost confound me how integrated everything is, and that's what we're looking at today. So, with that big picture in back of us or in front of us, depending on where you're sitting in the room, he writes in verse 12, Now, we ask you, brothers, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you and who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work, live in peace with one another. Now, let me stop there for a minute. Those first couple of verses are present responsibility deal with honoring our leaders. That's what he's talking about in his first two verses. Honoring, I feel like I'm walking a mile to get to the board because in the other room it's so nice and close, but I'm just glad we have this huge board. So acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, who admonish you. Care for you in the Lord, admonish you. That's your spiritual leaders in the church. That'd be like our pastors. Your pastors, exactly right. Your pastors, spiritual leaders, your Sunday school teachers, that kind of thing. Whatever different arrangements you have in your church. That is not the subject here. But that is a subject in another passage. We are to honor and obey our leaders. I really would rather not, if that's okay. <laughs> but, but Woody, that is, that is correct. We are to have that responsibility. As a matter of fact, the, the believer's life, I think, is a life of submission to authority. We are to be a submission to authority. Hold them in the highest regard in love, because of their work. Let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, you, you read words like this and you just, you know, they're not hard to understand. It's not hard to figure out the point. But what is the real point here? Acknowledge those who work hard, who care for you, who admonish you, hold them in highest regard. Because of their work, what what really is the point here about the believer's life, about the person who's a disciple of Christ, who's serious about their walk with the Lord? What what is the point in looking at your leaders in this way? Am I not making sense with my question? What I'm trying this is. This is a consistent principle that you see throughout God's Word. Uh, I would think it would be encouraging to them in their walk, even as Paul is encouraged by the walk of the Thessalonians uh, that he's addressing here. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? There's no New Testament uh, tribe of Levi, but if there were to be one, this would probably mm, be it. Mm, mm-hmm. That's right. So, is it somewhat of a parallel with how that they looked up to them and they? Oh, very much so. You're, you're, that's a great analogy to make between the tribe of Levi and the Old Testament economy of things, and 
the spiritual leaders in the local church. Because those who care for you, the, the Greek word there really is pastoral care. It's like shepherd care. It's like those who shepherd you. I think in part that it reflects Paul's recognition of just how important and vital the spiritual aspects of life are. And that these are the individuals who are speaking into that, influencing that, shaping that, encouraging that. It, it, it's sort of all tied together in the sense that this is, this is critical. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to recognize the importance of that and in a, in a real sense to serve and to honor and to respect those who have that role in your life. They are serving a very significant role. So should the believers in the flock be sowing seeds of rebellion against their leaders? It's such a stupid leading question. Of course not. <laughs> um, let's, let's make a couple of connections with other parts of God's word. These shepherds, Woody used the word pastor. Pastor and shepherd come from the same word. Um, to whom are they accountable? Now, obviously, you didn't hear that question, so I'll repeat it. To whom are they accountable? To the Lord. Does that mean they're not accountable to us? I'm sorry, Jim? I believe that they are accountable for right teaching. Right. And it would be part of our responsibility to make sure that they do that. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean we're constantly carping and harping and criticizing. Let's look at it more positively. I, I've, I've done a little bit of consulting with churches and stuff and boards, and almost always the question comes up, what should be our responsibility to our pastor as the board? What really should we be doing? In addition to all the normal fiduciary responsibilities the board has and so on, and my response is always twofold, especially for the, if it's a multi-staff church uh, where there is a senior lead pastor who primarily does the teaching and preaching. My response to them is your primary responsibility is twofold. Make sure that that pastor has adequate time to study. That is really important because it, I don't know how much you know about the actual functions and duties of the local church leaders and so on. But I'll tell you, some of those guys that get into it, they can be pulled in so many different directions. And they can get into, and it's not that it's wrong to do that, but they can get into counseling and get into all kind of administrative things and, and hospital visits. I mean, all those things, which are all of them really important, they end up, it's Saturday night, and they still haven't worked on their sermon. That's not good. Now, if the guy's an administrative pastor, and I tell you, he's hard, that's a totally different area. But this is the lead preaching pastor. You must assure that that man is taking enough time to study and that you are making certain he's doing that. And then the second responsibility, I think, is a protective function, to protect that person. 
protect that person from maybe pot shots that people in the congregation may be taking at him or or other th- because you as the board are understanding his role what you want him to do and he should have clear understanding of what you want him to do but then make sure he has the adequate time to do that and then to protect him and a lot of times boards don't do that and i you know we over the years, we've graduated a number of guys, young guys that go into the pastorate and so on, and they'll often get an assignment in a small rural church, and some of those boards just chew those guys up. I mean, they're just, they're unrealistic, and they're not doing those two things that, that I, I talked about that I think are really helpful. That's what Paul is getting at here. Understand the role these shepherds have in your life. Honor them, acknowledge them, and make sure that they will be able to do what you want them to do, which is nurture and enhance your spiritual growth. That's, a, that's an important function. That's what the shepherd's to do. And so that, again, because you, you want your spiritual leaders to enhance your growth in these two areas. Because the more you know about the Lord, the more you know about his attributes, what he's doing, his plan, and so on, the greater capacity you have to trust him. And therefore, your love will deepen for him and deepen for others. Because that's what we are supposed to do. Love God, our hearts of mind and strength, and love others as our neighbors love, your neighbors yourself. So I'm trying not to be so abstract here that you miss the point. This is really relevant stuff. I, I, I am amazed sometimes at the expectations people have for their lead pastors, but then they, they are, are so critical, it's such a critical spirit, that's very difficult for that guy to be able to do anything that is particularly helpful. Yeah, uh, and, and I would encourage all of us around the table that we think perhaps in the congregation we don't count for much, but we really do count for a lot. When we say something positive to our pastor, uh, because the pastor is one of the loneliest people in the church. Can be, yeah. Because he has to have, when he has a friend, oftentimes, and I have a son-in-law that's a pastor, has to go outside of the church to find someone he can just bear his soul to. It's sometimes a lonely position. Can so be. you do count. We do count. And just to say, Pastor, I really like the way you address for that. It really brought it home to me. Honestly, I mean, don't fake it, but mean it. And it'll encourage them. Because they don't get a lot of that. <laughs> Um, I'm a Catholic and priest in our parish is by himself. Mm. And that is never more necessary than in that situation. Because, mm. uh, you know, he's pulled, like you said, in many different directions. <clears throat> he just needs encouragement like everybody else does. Fred's word was a, it was a good word because I've known a lot of guys over the years 
and that uh, a pastoral can be very very lonely i mean it really that's i mean it's a good word it can, it can be a very lonely position and uh if a guy is lone, uh, has that sense of loneliness or that he's really alone he doesn't have any close supporters and friends um he's very vulnerable and who could take advantage of that vulnerability the evil one so I mean that's um, the a very very close mentor of mine when I was at Dallas Seminary used to say to us because some of the guys are going into pastoral mm-hmm. ministry and, and others going into academic ministry and things like that but he would always he would always say the mo- one of the most important responsibilities you have is to encourage your leaders and pray for your leaders those two things that be- they really go hand in hand because as a couple of you guys have really been saying, if if there is that sense of a lonely, lonely, at the top mentality, and nobody is really with me or supporting me, oh man, that that guy's getting set up in in a really vulnerable way, and I mean he could fall, the Satan could pick him off. And boy, if he, I'm sure you're aware that has happened a lot. So in practical terms, what does that look like? I mean, it's got to be more than on the way out the door saying great sermon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what Fred said. But, and what does it really look like mm-hmm. for us? You know, I don't think there's necessarily one silver bullet type answer to a question like that. You know, because I think t- t- to an extent, we as the flock need to figure out what what is encouraging to my pastor. What encourages him? What unique interest does he have? Uh, you know, but little things in addition to the word of encouragement in Sunday morning or something like that. We have always the capacity, just a nice encouraging email. That's a very practical, nice thing to receive. A handwritten note. But, you know, um, sometimes just one or a small group taking him out to lunch. And just reviewing a couple of nice things that, that you are appreciating about him. But also just talk to him about his kid, talking about the basketball game last night. Just show him that you're really interested in him. Those kinds of things mean an awful lot because the, the word Fred used is really often characteristic of these guys. They really feel lonely. Nobody cares. That's, that's not true, but that kind of sentiment. And I think the other item that I, I was often very meaningful, because most guys, especially in, in the Protestant uh, churches, are married, they have families, children, etc. Um, encourage, encourage them to make sure that they're spending enough time with their kids, taking their wives out. Give your pastor and his wife a small trip. Send them to Israel. <laughs> And I mean that seriously. That, I mean, that's a very wonderful gift. You know, sometimes churches do it for like, it has to like 15 years or 20 years. That's a wonderful way to really affirm it. And um, I think one of the other things that you can really do is honor a pastor if he's trying to protect his kids. Understand that. Because, I mean, my children were... You know, I mean, they weren't PKs, PKs, pastors' kids, but they were PKs, presidents' kids, 
in the sense that whenever there was an event, I mean, there's just an extra scrutinizing eye watching a leader's kids, because they're supposed to be perfect. And I don't know if you've noticed that there is no such thing as a perfect child. And there's definitely no such thing as a perfect teenager. That's an oxymoron. They don't go together. I'm being a little facetious there, but... I, Jim, I mean, it's just, it's, it's just lots and lots of ways in which you start to understand what, what are his interests, what's he like. Let's, let's affirm him in some of those areas as well. Now, to do it every other day, that's not reasonable, but anyway. Let's look at the next block of things. They're all, from here on out, they're just kind of basic, simple. Live in peace with each other. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Every one of those is a dimension of love for people. Every one of those is a dimension of a servant giving spirit. Every one of those is the antidote to selfishness and self-centeredness. They're not hard. I mean, the words are just almost self-explanatory. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. There's maybe one point about this that applies to the Thessalonian church. We will see this in Second Thessalonians, which will start next week. But some of the people in this little church at Thessalonica were taking these teachings and saying, okay, that means the Lord is coming back at any minute. We're going to quit our jobs, and we're going to go up on the hill outside of Thessalonica, which is what they were doing, and just waiting for Jesus to come back. And you're going to read when we start into second. He's just hinting at it here. Christians who are idle, if you don't work, you don't eat. And what, that, that's not a statement against welfare. That's not what it means. He was talking about people in the church who had taken this end time teaching and said, okay, we're going to quit our jobs, we're just going to wait for Jesus to come back. And like many local churches, they had a, you know, a program to help people who are ill or help people who are disabled for a bit of time or get, lose a job. You know, sometimes we call that a benevolence fund in our local churches. And Paul, you'll see this, Paul says, don't give those people a cent out of that fund. That's harsh teaching. No, it isn't. Because you do not have the responsibility to care for someone that will not take care of themselves. You need to help them to start to understand the responsibility. And again, I'm not, this isn't talking about necessarily the welfare system. I don't want to get into that. Because the context is the church. So that's why, you know, it's important to have a benevolence fund. I think it's a wonderful thing. But to make sure that that's being handled well, to being administered properly. Because he'll say this in Second Thessalonians. If you, if you are not administering that wisely, you're creating a dependency of those people on you. And that's not what you want. So he says, just warn those who are idle and disruptive. Knock it off. That's an interpretation of what he's saying there. Encourage the disheartened, the, those who, 
are because of the ups and downs, valleys and mountains of life, just encourage them. Oh, that's great. Help the weak. And weak there is asthene. It's not physically weak. It's spiritually weak. That's the meaning of that word. Those who are spiritually weak. And then be patient. Which of the four is the easiest for us to be patient with everyone? I didn't mean that because that's not the easiest. That's the most difficult. And make sure that no one pays back wrong for wrong. What's the point? We are not into vengeance. We're into justice. Now, I don't think we need to elaborate on those, but if you want to, we can talk about them. Every one of them, I'll repeat what I said a moment ago, every one of these is an expression of love. Every one of these is an antidote to selfishness and self-centeredness. One, one of the things, go ahead. The NIV says, admonish the unruly no, this, this is the older NIV, the idle and disruptive. Disruptive. Really? Which one then? Is that clear interpretation? Yeah, it's pretty good. What, what did yours say? Which has a completely different connotation to it, except for the disruptive piece. Yeah. Disruptive, unruly. They can complement one another, I think. Yeah, oh, it doesn't have idle. It has unruly and ah, and disruptive, or just one word. There are two words there, Jim. It's interesting. It just has unruly. One word. Well, this one says the unruly, encourage the faint hearted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh the sense who are idle and are choosing not to work become disruptive and unruly. It, those two things connected together. Why are they disruptive and unruly? Because they're idle, because they're not um, responsibly taking care of themselves. I, and uh, that's why I, I like how that, separating it into those two thoughts, idle and disruptive, or idle and unruly, they are connected. And I think that, in one sense, that's self-evident, isn't it? Uh, what did my mother used to say? Um, idleness is the devil's not idleness. Playground. What is it? Playground. Playground, that's it. My mom used to say that. So, you remember, she's the only one that can call me this. But Jimmy, get busy doing something. I don't want you to sit around. So, anyway. I want to focus for the remaining time on verse 16, 17, and 18. If there's any question that I have been asked 
of college students the most is this question, what's God's will for my life? Do you know what I mean? You know, for young adults, it's usually they're dating a guy or a gal and they want to know, is it God's will for me to marry that person? Or they're getting close to graduation and they're not, you know, certain specifics. They have maybe two or three opportunities. Which one is God's will for me? Or, I mean, just generally, you know, I'm trying to find God's will for my life. I always direct them to this passage to start. Let's read it from the last verse in the paragraph up to the first verse. This is God's will for you. And the demonstrative pronoun this is referring to what is in verse 16, 17, and 18. I often somewhat kiddingly to my students say, 96% of God's will for your life is already revealed. Now, I just pulled that percentage out of thin air. I, I, that not true, I don't think. Maybe it is. But look at what he says. Rejoice always. Pray without, seek, without ceasing. And in everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you. It doesn't have anything to do with your vocation or your job. It doesn't have anything to do with the house you're going to live in or the car you're going to drive. It doesn't have anything specifically to do with the spouse that you will marry. What are these three items? They're three short, pithy commands. And my question is just hanging out there, floating in thin air. Why? What's the importance? What's the significance? Why focus on these three items? Well, you're, you're on the positive side all the time with all of these. You're, you're not. Mm. I mean, I think it would be a great help to keep you from being down about things mm. if, if you can think in terms of all the blessings that we have right now mm. and how well I'm doing mobility and, mm. it, and uh, I think that just helps with your overall approach to life. That's, that's interesting way to put that, John. I like that. These are, these are positive, uh, affirming kind of uh, commands. They are commands that everybody can. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is universal, you know, yeah, absolutely. If you put them into three, a joyful spirit, 
a prayful spirit, a thankful spirit. You try to really distill them down to three really easy to remember things. A joyful spirit, a prayerful, prayerful spirit, and a thankful spirit. Let's start with the third one and work up. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you have a thankful spirit. Talk to me about that. I mean, think through that. What, what does that mean? Jim, and I don't know if John said that, but Jim certainly stressed it. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, how's that connected to a thankful spirit? Wait, you don't have to raise your hand. Just talking. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if this is right or not, but if, if I plan on taking a trip and my car doesn't start, mm. uh, therefore, my uh, first nature is to be disappointed and look on it. Yeah, know? yeah. But maybe there's an accident down the street mm. that God protected me from by allowing my car not to start. Uh, you know, and if you can think of it that way, that God's in charge of our life. Yeah. He's in charge, not us. And nothing happens that he doesn't okay, so to speak. Hmm. And uh, so, so just have the faith maybe that there's a good reason for this. I don't know what it is. So and you may, never, you may never know what it was. But, know. yeah, yeah. You left town with a real thankful spirit. Jim, does that include suffering situations in their life? And that thankful spirit is something that probably we grow in the ability and capacity to have that more consistently. I just stretched that out. I hope you followed the words I was using carefully there. Let me give you an illustration because it just happened. Um, in my early uh, morning, 6.30 a.m., Bible guy, group of guys uh, in the Bible study, um, Four weeks ago, actually four weeks ago yesterday, this guy walked into his office. He's a, a an architect in a prestigious architect firm, and he really, really had a good job. And he walked in. Um, he was let go that day. And like they ushered him out to the car after he cleaned out his desk. Absolutely devastating. Part of the part of the problem was the the team leader that he. He did not like this guy, and he kind of had it in for him, and anyway, he eventually let him go. This absolutely devastated that guy. I mean, he had been with that firm for about 15 years, and 
but he's he's really a committed believer, very serious about his faith, very serious about his responsibilities, and so on. But it devastated him. And uh, none of the other guys in the Bible study just you know, kind of gathered around him and encouraged him, and and uh, you know we prayed for him every day that we met and throughout the week and so on. Uh, this week, uh, actually, it would have been the end of last week. He was hired by another firm. Much the responsibility much closer attuned to his gifts and what he really enjoys, 30% higher wage package and benefit package. In just, he says, I look at this and I, with the hurt that I went through the last 30 years, 30 days of losing this position, you know, and all the identity that goes with that for a man and, and, and many women as well. He said, I lost it all. And I watch God just put everything back together for me. And it's just an absolutely amazing. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. I mean, sometimes guys lose jobs and they never get a comparable position back again or whatever. But I just, I, I just watched this guy over those 30 days. I mean, he, it was hard for him. But he kept, he kept that focus. Lord, you are in control. This is from my best interest. Whatever you're going to do when it's all over, I'm going to be able to look back and say, this was an important part of my life from God's perspective. I mean, now he's just, I mean, Jack's absolutely blown away at how God has taken care of him. His thankful spirit has gone through the roof. Now, granted, I mean, not every time does that happen, but I just, I watched him go through this. And it was, it was really an encouraging thing to hear a guy who's very serious about his faith and his trust in the Lord is real. I mean, it's real. And through what has happened, it's strengthened even more. And that's that thankful spirit. Does God know what he's doing? Yes. Does God have my best interests at heart? Yes. Can God take hurt and pain and suffering in this ugly, fallen world and bring good out of it? Yes, he can. But if we know when you and I are in the middle of that, it is sometimes really hard to have that, that sense of a real thankful spirit. Instead, we're grumbling. We're masters at grumbling spirits. And that's understandable. And God really understands that. But Paul is saying, God's will for you is have a thankful spirit. And as a couple of you have said, that is rooted in our understanding of who God is. This is a very famous passage, but let me remind you of it. Do you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis, chapter 39 through chapter 50, the longest section in the book of Genesis on a single figure? It's Joseph. Remember that? The Bible says nothing negative about Joseph. So he's a man of sterling character. He's a young teenage boy, and his brothers throw him in a pit and sell him to the Ishmaelites, who then take him down to Egypt. And he gets into the government after years and so on, and then he gets into the situation where the wife of his boss is after him, trying to seduce him. You know what happens? He ends up in prison. And he just goes through all this, but there's no, there is no evidence of Joseph complaining. He's trusting that it, that phrase that keeps coming up through that is, the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. And then at the very end of the book, his brothers... There's a famine in Beersheba area. They come down, they get food, and it's Joseph. You know what Joseph says? 
You guys meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. So God can take something evil and hurtful and painful and bring good out of it. I don't know if you know John Schlegel. Do you know who I mean by John Schlegel? Yeah, former president of Creighton. Um, I, I got to know him real well when I was president. We served on a bunch of things together. He's dying of pancreatic cancer. Irreversible. I mean, he's going to die. And he's chosen not to uh, do specific treatments that might prolong his life a little bit. And um, I, I'm amazed at this man in this sense. What he said um, just recently was, I want to I make sure the remaining days I have will bring glory and honor to Jesus. I'm going to seek to help people, serve people. And I mean, I don't think he, I mean, I don't know all the medical specifics of, of his situation, but it's very clear it's going to take his life a lot sooner rather than later. And I just, I was, I was moved by that because here's a guy who would, you know, kind of every right to say, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm, I'm a gifted person whom God has given several responsibilities and, uh, you know, I served as president of Creighton, but I'm still doing something. Now, now I'm going to die of pancreatic cancer. I'm really angry. You got, you know, he's, but that's not the spirit of what he's trying to communicate. And I, I like that in, a, in an individual because that's kind of modeling what Paul is saying. It's almost like Although he doesn't specifically say it, it's almost like regardless of the situation, have a thankful spirit. Because this is the eternal perspective. You follow what I'm saying? This is the eternal perspective. This is your destiny. And this this is what is is going to be a part of your future. Jesus is coming back for you. And you're going to receive your resurrected glorified body, which won't have pancreatic cancer or stiff knees or whatever the problem is at this point in our life. And so therefore, a thankful spirit, and then notice, that's it. notice that language, give thanks in all circumstances, in everything give thanks, NASB says. In everything, give thanks. You know, I can say these words very easily as they roll out of my mouth in this comfortable room. I've absolutely no idea what Seth is going to hold or tomorrow or... But, and every one of us around the table. But if we believe God is in control, if we believe he has our best interests at heart, then we should be able to say... In everything, I give thanks to the Lord. What's that next verse mean in conjunction with this one? Uh, do you, do you mean verse 19? Yeah, do not quench, do, do not quench the spirit. It, it implies that if you're not thankful in all things, that you would be quenching the spirit. I don't know if that's correct. Not necessarily, but possibly. We'll talk about that next week. Look at the second to last one. I'm working my way backwards. Pray without ceasing, or you could translate that, pray continually. 
What does that mean? And what it means applicationally. What does that mean? You know what the words mean, but what does that mean applicationally? You're not alone. You're in connection with your father. Mm. And you can talk Mm. to him and you can talk to us. And it's a good way to live, but it's a hard way to do it when you're you're, uh, dealing with the stuff of this world. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I like, I like how you put that, Daryl, this, this connection we have with the Heavenly Father. And prayer, uh, you've heard me define it this way before, because I know we've briefly talked about it. I, and it isn't my original definition, but I define prayer as a dialogue between two people who love one another. That's prayer. I mean, you are in a constant communication with your Father in heaven. Now, you know, it, it's... It has two segments to it. You know, typically, most of us have you know, a little prayer list, or whether it's written down or just mentally in our minds, that we just pray kind of every day for certain things. If you're, if you're a dad, you're praying for your kids, your spouse, you know, if your parents are still alive. I mean, all those, they're just things you naturally pray through, kind of prayer list, maybe at the beginning of the morning or whatever. But that's not the point he's making here. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. It's this ongoing conversation with God. We read this earlier. This goes back, goodness, a month and a half, six, seven weeks ago. Remember early in the First Thessalonians letter, he says, Night and day I pray for you. That is an extraordinary statement. I have no idea what that means. I mean, specifically. Does it mean he doesn't sleep? No, it doesn't mean that. It's just that... The Thessalonians were on Paul's mind, and I have to believe that as they came into his mind, he prayed for them. Did you ever did you ever wake up during the night and somebody's name comes to your mind? Do you know what I think your response to that should be? Pray for that person. Because whether this is accurately, specifically, always right or not, if God is in control and God has your best interest at heart, and God has that person's best interest at heart, you can maybe conclude that God wants you to pray for that person right now. Uh, you know, that's what my wife taught me that. That's not my original thought. Because when she wakes up and, and I have somebody, one of the kids on her mind or a friend or something, she just prays for them at that moment. That's part of this dialogue, this conversation. You're constantly in tune with the Lord. That's both comforting and convicting. Comforting in the sense that you have that absolutely incredible freedom to talk to God about anything at any time. In what way is it convicting? Because if you are talking to God like that all the time, it's kind of a check on some of the things that might displease him, isn't it? It's almost like he's saying, Jim, you really don't want to think that way. Let's talk some more about it. Look at what I said in my work. That's, honestly, I think that is ideally what, what the Lord has in mind when you see throughout the scriptures. We saw it in Genesis 5, real quick one time. Enoch walked with God. 
it says in in uh, in, in Ephesians and in Galatians, walk with the Lord, walk through the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. It's this very constant, continual relationship with God as you converse, talk, dialogue with Him. I would encourage you to just think about that in your life. What does that look like for me? You see a nice, beautiful morning that God's created? Thank Him for that. You're thanking Him and you're talking to Him. One more, because I want to. I'd really like to do. Oh goodness! Now my watch says a quarter of that clock says twenty of. Which one is right? I think your watch is right. I think my watch is right. Uh, rejoice always. I I don't have a lot of time because of the clock, but rejoice, joy, they're interconnected words. Rejoice is the action. Joy is, is kind of the noun, a uh, single idea. What is joy? If we were, I, I can't take the time to do that, but if we would write on a board, what are some of the uh, synonyms for joy? What are some interchangeable words that kind of express what joy is? What, what would be some we'd put down real quick? Gratitude. Say it again, please. Gratitude. 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 Good. That's a good one. Boy, listen to the suggestions that are not coming. <laughs> Hopeful. Hopeful? Okay. Ed, what did you say? Happiness? Okay. Exaltation. Oh, my. Exaltation. Okay. Uh, it, has a, it has a lot. I mean, exaltation is joy. It's a worship word. It's a great word. Absolutely. I've got to close, but let me close with this thought, and I'll pick up with it next week. Joy is a God-centered response to things in life. Not a circumstance-controlled response to things in life. I know that's, that's much to digest there, but let me repeat it. Joy is a God-centered response to things in life. Not a circumstance-controlled response to things in life. If you live a circumstance-controlled life, what's your life look like? It's this. And I mean, that's natural. That's natural. But God is, again, if our theology is right about God, then joy is one of those things we should start to see. We should start to see some growth in that area. Where there, there are always the valleys, but they're not as deep and not as wide as they were 10 years ago. Uh, that's maybe too easy to say, but it is that that response to the Lord. So I want to pick up with that next week. I maybe um, shouldn't have started it because we really have to stop. So I want to pick up with that next week, say some concluding thoughts, raise and deal with uh, Woody's question about verse 19 as well as 20. And then I kind of think we'll probably finish that. and We'll get started in the second letter to the Thessalonians. These are, they're almost like one letter, but they are, were really written at two different periods of time, separated by a few months. So it's a, it's a wonderful book too. So let me pray here as we leave. Lord, we're thankful for our time around the Word this, uh, over the launch hour here. Um, 
You've made a lot of promises to us, and when we studied the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we too saw two really incredible promises, that you're coming back for us, Jesus, in that event that is in that passage called the rapture, and that you will preserve us from the fury and judgment of the day of the Lord. We are not destined for wrath. That's a tremendous promise. That's to affect the hope that comes from that and how we live our lives day in and day out. And we just looked at three remarkably convicting challenges. To give thanks, have a thankful spirit, to be dialoguing and conversing with you throughout the day, not just at a short period in the morning or right before we put our head on the pillow, just kind of an ongoing conversation with you. I believe that's just incredibly delightful to you. That's what you created us, to have fellowship and love and communion with you, and then to have that joyful spirit. We want to talk more about that, but we're talking about the supernatural life here, a life that's centered on Christ, that's desiring and trusting Christ for all things, and having an intimate, loving relationship with you, our Heavenly Father, as well. Lord, help us in these things. We're all growing in these areas. We're in this process of growth together. None of us has reached it, but it's wonderful to encourage and build up one another in and through these these times that we're together. So encourage us through it, comfort us through it, and help us to be good representatives of you to everyone and in everything that we say. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Have a great week.